Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now. What we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy. And we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts. We've got comedians, storytellers, musicians, spoken word artists and more. And they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears. Hello, everybody. Are we recording, by the way, Harv? That's always handy. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Now, what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we invite people to come along and stand up on stage and do some tragedy. It's as simple as that, really. Um, We get all sorts of people to to stand up and do tragedy uh, from all of the different parts of the arts. And so we should expect on this stage tonight to see things that are going to make us feel sad uh, because that's what tragedy is about. Um, So this is kind of also, as well as an introduction to the night, it's a content note to prepare yourselves for the kind of content that happens in tragedy. Uh, So there may be some death, there may be some sadness, there may be some complicated things to process but that's okay because we're going to process them together because what I want Stand Up Tragedy to be is a safe space to talk about unsafe things so that's what we're going to do tonight Uh, we're going to make you cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry that's the idea okay so we are a live show we are also a podcast Um, so in the next week's coming after now you will be able to hear the things you heard in this room and you'll be able to tell your friends to listen to them uh, which is always handy you can find that on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts go to hang out on the internet really so there you go that's that bit of admin or sadmin as I like to call it uh, done so this year we're doing uh, four shows in London they're seasonal uh, so we've already had tragic winter today it's tragic spring And so I guess it's going to be about things, you know, when things start to grow, when things start, it often means that things are also dying. Uh, So I think that that is kind of what these transitional months are like. Like my favourite two two parts of the year, really, my favourite seasons are spring and autumn because it's when everything is happening. Life and death, birth and uh, whatever. Well, life's the opposite of birth, so I've fucked that up royally. So... That's what we're going to do. We're going to explore new things, I guess. Spring, the kind of topics that connect us with the idea of spring. So basically, we've got three acts, uh, three parts, and each part will be a different podcast, um, and they're going to have different themes. So the themes we've got tonight are tragic beginnings, tragic bodies, which is guest curated and hosted by Matilda Gregory. So I've got no idea what's happening in that part of the night. So I'm really excited about that. And tragic sex is how we're going to end, which is a good way to end most nights, I think. Um, Okay, so welcome back to act two of Stand Up Tragedy. Uh, This one is tragic bodies. Now, uh, so for these shows that we're doing these four london shows i've been asking different people to guest host and curate act two because i like to be surprised as well um so it's my pleasure to introduce matilda gregory who is currently working on her show how to be fat which you can see in brighton on the 20th of may and london on the 28th of may Uh, she's previously talked at stand-up tragedy about writing werewolf erotica which was one of my favorite sets we've ever had um, but it's going to be a different stuff tonight. So put your hands together, everyone, for the host of the second act, Matilda Gregory! Hello. Oh, this is high. Um, yeah, so I'm not going to talk about werewolf erotica at all tonight. Okay. I know. I'm sorry. I can't... I, people always... Why don't you talk about werewolf erotica just constantly all the time? But, you know, I'm a whole person. <laughs> There's more to me than just that. Um, so my uh, section of the show is called Tragic Bodies. So it's about you know anyone who has a body, really, and uh, the things that might happen as a result of having one. Um, I was going to talk to you first to tell you a very short story 
about one of the most dramatic things my body's ever done, which is when I shot a human being out of my vagina. Um, which you'd think once would be enough. I've actually done it twice. Um, the thing about when you're pregnant for the first time, this was my experience, I think it's pretty common, is I didn't really care about whether my baby was gonna be a boy or a girl. I didn't really care about whether my baby was gonna be okay. All I cared about was, what is it gonna fucking feel like when this baby comes out of my body? And I, I asked people, like I knew a lot of people who'd done this, and they were all really vague about what it was like. Um, it started to get quite ominous. Like I would say, what's it feel like? And they would say things like, well, when you've done it, you'll know. And you start feeling like, what, what the fuck happens? What is it that you can't tell me? And then when it had happened, I realized that it's not really ominous at all. It's just, you can't fucking remember it. It's really, it's really weird. Your body is so full of hormones and it's such a crazy situation that all I can remember about the birth of my first child was it was quite dark in that room. And by the end, I only had my socks on. And that's all I could remember to the extent that when I was pregnant for the second time, rather than thinking, oh, well, I know how to do this now. I've done it before. I was every bit as petrified and confused as I was the first time. So what I thought I'd do is straight after it happened, I thought I'd write it down, everything that happened when my son was born. I wrote it down and I published it on my live journal. <laughs> I should say this was 10 years ago, I'm not weird. Um, and this is, this, is, this is what I wrote. Um, it, was, it was the afternoon and uh, I had some toast and I went online and my partner took our daughter into the bedroom. They both fell asleep and I started having mild contractions. And about an hour and a half later, my partner and my daughter woke up and I said, I I'm in labor. I wasn't really in any pain and I had a bath and my partner took our daughter to bed and I sat on the sofa and I just felt a bit weird. And the contractions weren't painful enough that I was kind of squirming around. But um, at about 9.30, I had to get off the sofa and sort of lie over a footstool to watch TV. And I thought, this isn't what I normally do. Something's going on. And they got more and more painful to the extent that I had to shut my eyes when they were happening. I was watching an Alan Partridge DVD and I was like missing some of the jokes because I was having contractions. So I thought, well, maybe I'll call a midwife. So I called the midwife and she arrived about... 10 to 11 and I was having a contraction when she arrived and the first thing she did is she said to my partner very dramatically how long have they been like this and I don't know what he said because I was having a contraction <laughs> I lay down on the sofa and she said I'm going to examine you and she examined me and she said you're seven centimeters dilated and very stretchy and I was just terrified like my cervix was had opened itself to seven centimeters. It's like that, it's like that. I hadn't like told it to do that. It just, it was a, just this terrifying feeling of like, my body has started doing something all by itself and I've got no say. And she said to me, it's not gonna be long. I'm gonna call a, a second midwife. And I was just thinking, you can call all the midwives you fucking want. I'm not shooting a baby out of myself tonight. I'm just, I don't want to do it. I was putting my hands between my legs and thinking, well, this just feels normal. What's going on? You don't have to be that in tune with your body to be quite aware. There isn't a hole in it anywhere the size of a person. <laughs> Even the smallest type of person that they do. <laughs> so... I got back on this footstool and I was lying on this footstool and the second midwife came in. And I'm pretty sure by that point I just didn't have any clothes on at all. And strangers were just walking into my living room. And that's, that's just the weird thing about being pregnant. All of it, not just giving birth. It's just there's something about your bodily autonomy that just sort of shifts. And it's just slightly off. Like, when I was pregnant for the first time, a complete stranger double-fisted me in the vagina. And she was a doctor, and we were in a hospital, and I was pregnant, so I just thought, well, that's probably fine. 
I mean, I don't have much of a memory of the whole event, but I do know that if you want someone to put both their hands into your vagina for like medical reasons or just recreational ones, what you do is you lie on your back and you put your soles of your feet together and you make both your hands into fists and put them in the small of your back. And that is the best position to get into for that to happen. And I didn't ask for that knowledge, but I'm just passing it on. I mean, it might be useful to some people. Um, anyway, so things kind of got really kind of busy really fast after that. And I was kind of like up on my knees for every contraction. I was kind of like moaning in this really high-pitched voice. And in between each one, I kind of felt like I was almost falling asleep. And it's hard to say if this was painful. I mean, I don't really have any memory of it being painful, but you don't really remember pain after the event. I mean, I think it was quite extreme, and that's the best thing I can really say about it. And I mean, I thought this was uh, probably the transition stage, but I didn't ask because I was scared that it wasn't. And, um, then, and then I felt something in my vagina, and they said, oh, there's loads of mucus coming out now. So that happened. It's fine, you can't see. Then after that, I shat myself. And the thing about giving birth is that there aren't many times in your life when you can just shit yourself in front of people and no one even says anything. <laughs> so if you are giving birth, do take that opportunity. <laughs> because it just doesn't come up that often. Then the really weird thing happened. Um, I felt this happen and it was like the whole of my kind of cunt and ass area just moved. Like genuinely, I felt it happen. It was like, you know when the undercarriage of an aeroplane opens up to let the wheels down? <laughs> it, that happened. And as soon as that happened, it was just like, oh, that's how the baby's getting out. I see, it was, it was like, it was as if, I was just there in this room going, I don't know how to give birth to a baby. And suddenly my body turned up and went, it's all right, I'm here now. I know how to give birth this baby. I'm going to do it for you. I've always said that for me, giving birth, it's a bit like being sick or sneezing. It's one of those things that you don't do that. Your body does it. It's one of those things that just, it's too important for you to do it. <laughs> Your body just comes in and goes, look, I've got this. Just shut up. And it's just, it's exactly that. It's the same sensation that you have, you know, when you're there over the toilet going, how do I be sick again? It's that exact same thing. It's like, imagine you're trying to land an aeroplane and you don't know how to land the aeroplane. And suddenly this voice comes over the radio and goes, look, I know how to land the aeroplane. Just do exactly what I say and everything will be fine. And... It's always struck me that it's really odd that in order to describe to you what it's like doing this thing, the best way is to use the analogy of landing an aeroplane when you don't know how to land an aeroplane, which is not something that I imagine has happened to most people, but it's still somehow easier to understand than this thing that I'm describing, which has happened to quite a lot of people, but that seems to be how it is. <laughs> then I wanted to push, and I started pushing, and a baby started coming out of me, and the baby's head got halfway out of my vagina, and then my contraction stopped. And that was quite an interesting moment, because that's the bit that's most frightening, really, the bit where the head comes out of your vagina. And I remember there was a bit where I was just there, and they said, just breathe, there'll be another contraction in a minute. And I thought, there's a head coming out of my vagina, like, right now. And it was fine, and I breathed, and then there was another contraction, and then a baby came out of me. And uh, that was fine, then I had some chips. <laughs> and um, it was all fine. And what I've taken from that experience, really, is um, giving birth is quite easy. I mean, I don't think I'll ever do it again, but if someone came in now and said, could you just give birth for me now over here, quickly? I mean, I would say, well, I'm doing this. But if you can wait, like, 30 minutes, sure. It's no big deal, really. You don't actually have to do it yourself. Um, that's, that's what happened. Um, it's, it's a true story. 
Um, yeah, my son's 10 now, and I, he doesn't know that I do this on stage. <laughs> and I think I've probably got about three more years before he's like, will you fucking stop that? Um, the first act that I have for you tonight is a friend of mine, and she's going to talk about gender and um, gender issues, and I'm really excited to hear what she's going to do. And would you please give a really big round of applause for Krishna Istha. Hello. Um, I'm just going to go straight in, but content warning for transphobia. Has anyone ever been to India? Yeah, where? Bangalore. Sorry? Bangalore. Nice, did you like it? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so, no, it's, it's brilliant, but you'll see why I did that. <laughs> so I've just come back from a three-week trip to India. I hadn't been in a while, and it was different to me this time. Good different, bad different, I don't know, just a whole lot different. I landed in Mumbai, India, at quarter past midnight, Indian Standard Time. So first things first, I had to pee. My mum and I wandered off to find a toilet, found them just across the passage and walked into the women's one. I walk in first, I look up and I see someone in there searching me. She looks at me with intense eyes, almost questioning me, and I already know what's coming. She licks, me, she, licks, she licks me up and down and I can already feel the fear bubbling up from the soles of my feet. She runs up to me and, has, and in as harsh a voice as I've ever encountered says, Sir, men's toilet is next door, get out. <laughs> Funnily enough, I didn't even understand this coming from my mouth in another language, but I understood men's and next door. My mom profusely apologized and said I was indeed a woman. The lady stood her ground in front of me, arms folded, and said I could either choose to leave or prove I belonged. I decide to lift my jumper, case solved, I'm allowed to pee. By then, <laughs> I'd already peed in my pants. Ooh, missed my spot. Not because of the trembling fear I'd felt, but because I genuinely, desperately had to pee right that second, even before we'd walked in. And I wasn't sure if I was more embarrassed by the fact that I peed in my pants, or more by the fact that I had to prove myself of a gender I am not, or more embarrassed that my mom was so upset by this incident. I ask her if she thinks this is the first time this has happened to me. She shakes her head and said, I guess not. We laugh it off half-heartedly, and I hope it doesn't happen again, so I don't have to see her sad, loving face. Five minutes later, we're waiting to board the plane to Bangalore. Walking through security check and the guard checks my mum's ticket and says, thank you, madam, please go this way. He checks mine, licks me up and down and says, um, thank you. And I can hear the end trail off. He's unsure which way to point me to. He looks to the left, men's line, and then to the right, women's line. He just nods and I graciously accept the fact that he didn't want to assume anything of me. In that moment, he was the closest I could get to an ally. Did he know his lack of words to describe me was like winning the lottery in that second? So I follow my mum to the women's line, and of course the person there asks in Hindi if I'm female. I don't understand anything but the word female, so I nod and give her the biggest smile ever. The only thing I assume now looks feminine to them. She looks at me strange and asks me to follow her. Asks me one more time if I'm female, and I nod rather enthusiastically for someone who's not. She isn't convinced, so she lifts my jumper and feels me up. I can see my mom's face as I walk out, and I feel bad for her. I didn't even look particularly gender neutral on the day. Or rather, I think I didn't, because it's not something I think about. Something I've learned not to think about. To just wear what I feel fits me each morning and to not wonder if it's masculine or feminine or men's clothes or women's clothes or pink or blue or purple or the rainbow. You see, when you're genderqueer and all genders and none feel like you in this one shade grey heteronormative world, it only hurts the unicorn glitter land that I call my mind to think of such things. Do you ever wonder if people see what you see in yourself? As I walk out of the airport and into the street, I see temples adorned with statues of men and women and of neither and both. 
And I can only blame the colonizers for ruining my country for me. There's ancient Indian mythology that speaks of women who transform to men and men whose bodies resemble what one would call a biologically female body and of people that are half this and half that, a quarter something and three-fourths another. And I wonder, I wonder what it would have been like growing up in a society that accepted my body for the way it is. I wonder if my experience at the airport would have been any different if Indian society hadn't been influenced by the loss the British monarchy placed on them when they captured and colonized it. I wonder if I'd have known earlier. I wonder if there are people like me still growing up there. I wondered and questioned many things about my identity all of a sudden. I'd asked these questions before, of course, but suddenly it was a whole lot more personal. Suddenly I had lost something in the colonization process that I was particularly aware affected me personally, and now I was mad. I realized I had such a massive privilege for passing for cis in the West. By that I mean the passing structure society has placed on us. Although I'm not sure if a transgender person could ever have privilege in that department. I mean, what is passing anyway? Is there a particular algorithm for all genders that one must accomplish to be deemed gold star in society? I never thought about it before. I only thought about how I was constantly misgendered and how my body was read as female here in London. Suddenly, I couldn't go into toilets, a basic necessity in a hot country where one drinks bottles after bottles of water. Because the men's toilet wasn't a place I felt safe and I wasn't allowed into the women's toilet because what? I had short hair. Every time I walked through the women's toilet here in London, I'd cringe. Not because I was scared of being thrown out, but because I didn't feel like a woman, and I wondered if anyone saw me walk through that door, they'd automatically assume things. They probably would anyway, but I was confirming it by walking through that door. Now, I was cringing because I was truly scared I'd upset someone from being in there. Before, I found it a victory if my body was read as male. Suddenly, it was a victory and a sense of accomplishment if my body was perceived as female. <laughs> what the fuck was happening to my sense of identity? I hated being called sir. I hated... I also hated being called madam. I wished with all my heart that people would stop assuming, stop putting their concept of my identity in my mouth forcefully. If I just nod and go with it, am I doing it selfishly? To not start a spark of Q&A-fueled fire? If I spoke out, corrected them each time, would I be helping others like me in the conquest? Would that make me an activist? I don't know. See, the answer is, I don't know, because I try so very hard to not think about it. To not think of my body and how it's perceived. To not think about what people see when they look at me. To not think of every time I'm called pretty and not handsome. To not think about anything at all, really. But I have a fucking encyclopedia for a brain, and that doesn't help. Internal racism, internal misogyny, internal transphobia. Do I deal with all of this fast before I deal with the world? Krishna Ishtar, sorry, I sat too far away and it all went wrong. Um, yeah, so I sat really near the back, which was a mistake. Um, as well as um, writing werewolf erotica and uh, doing things like this, I also run a night, um, I co-run a night called Slash Night, which is um, a live literature event about slash fan fiction. Um, if you don't know what slash fan fiction is, it's um, where um, almost predominantly, almost exclusively women write stories about usually male characters that we've taken from TV and film and books and put them in romantic or sexual relationships with other male characters um, from that. The kind of the reason why this happens is um, 
because I don't know if you know, now there's the internet, we obviously have like access to a lot more sexual material, a lot more pornography. And if you're a man, you'll find there's a, a huge industry supplying you with everything you could dream of, whether you're gay or straight, there's a huge multi-billion dollar industry with awards and celebrities and things like that. If you're a woman, well, we write ours down and that's just fine. We've got laptops, we can type, we'll just, we'll just think of it and, and write it down. And we don't need, you don't need to share with us, it's, it's fine, just, just leave us alone. <laughs> it's all we really want with that. Um, I, I, I co-run um, Slash Night with my friend Muffy, who's here tonight. And um, what she's going to talk about is some of the problems that you run into as a woman when you want to create a piece of fiction about uh, a man just sort of constantly abusing another man's body and how that can sometimes get a bit complicated. Um, and it also features the most disturbing homemade prop I have ever seen. So prepare yourselves for that, ladies and gentlemen, Muffy. Okay, so as Matilda said, um, fan fiction, or at least the branch that I'm talking about, is what happens when you watch your favourite thing and you think, yes, this is brilliant, but what if these two characters were having angry sex all the time? <laughs> um, so it's a slight oversimplification. Um, basically, with fanfic as well, it's also it can be an escape from quite tedious, heteronormative, sometimes really, really harmful narratives. Um, so... Basically, what we do when we're writing it is we're making it something that's much more relatable. And um, sometimes what we want to do with these stories will still be really, really problematic. It won't subvert anything, uh, but other times it can. And uh, other times it can be something that we've typed up at 3am because we've just finished watching Daredevil. And uh, we really, really thought that those two adorable little avocados deserved a little bit more intimacy than they had in the show. <laughs> Um, but the problem is as well with fanfic and also with its authors is that we do come in for quite a lot of mockery and uh, quite a lot of that mockery does come from gatekeepers who are just a little bit annoyed that all this stuff exists that's not written for them. And so they'll come out and they'll say things like, oh, it's kind of just, it's quite tragic kind of wish fulfillment fantasy, isn't it? And then they'll go and watch yet another film about a straight, white, cisgendered man having loads of adventures and character development and sex with loads of beautiful, pliant women. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of making it sound here as though um, I'm about to kind of talk about how tragic it is, you know, trying to find a safe space here. But mostly, as Matilda's warned you, I'm just up here to be vile. Um, <laughs> So the kind of the thrust of what I wanted to talk about is just how difficult it is to write this, this horrible fanfic in a way that makes it readable and hot and also anatomically plausible. <laughs> um, so I'm also going to point out at this point, there is a kind of, there's a spectrum of fanfic. So at one end, you've got the really sweet, fluffy stuff. So that's your kind of, oh my God, wouldn't it be really, really good if, say, Thor and Captain America held hands, got an ice cream and maybe adopted a kitten together? And then at the other end, you've kind of got the stories that come with a list of trigger warnings, which is longer than most people's CVs, and makes the reader feel really, really dirty after reading them. Um, so I write quite a lot of stuff about the TV show Hannibal, uh, which is quite big on, you know, cannibalism and mutilation and emotional devastation. Um, so you can probably tell kind of whereabouts in the spectrum this is headed. Um, so, but while the themes are kind of important, uh, what I just want to talk about is how hard it is. Like, it's really, really hard, uh, just because everything is going to start to sound like a euphemism after a while. Um, so I'm also going to put a disclaimer here, which is to say that I'm really, really bad at writing smut. Um, so with kind of romance stories, you've got romance, uh, but then you've also got toxic codependency. 
I can get a little bit confused about the two things here. And that didn't stop Fifty Shades of Grey from being really popular. Uh, but that's not really the benchmark of quality that I'm aiming for. Um, also, you can have kind of really great enthusiastic sex and you can have people trying to kill each other. And again, I'm sometimes a little bit fuzzy on the distinction between the two. Um, apparently, that's not always that hot. Um, so basically, you're getting down to write your story and your characters, they need to get it on. So this does have to be depicted somehow. Uh, so you can do this the coy way. So you can make a bit of an allusion to the fact that bits of one person are going into bits of another person. And you can use kind of vagaries and metaphors and words like surging and completion. And you don't have to reference any anatomy whatsoever. Um, or you can do the thing where you reference every single globule of bodily fluids that emerge throughout the process. If you go down that route, though, you kind of have to name the bits that the bodily fluids are, are being kind of spurted forth from. And this is where it becomes a bit of a sort of a minefield, um, but like a minefield of genitalia. Um, <laughs> Because you kind of you need to know what to refer to the things as, and like, are you consistent with what you call them, or do you have a kind of pick and mix of genitals? So, like, starting with the penis, you've got so many options there. Like, you could just call it a penis, or a cock. That one's quite popular, or or a dick, or you could call it like a meat popsicle. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Or you could call it a, a, a porking stick, perhaps. And you've just got so many options, and that's just one really small body part. And uh, that's... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but that's not even touching on, say, the nipple problem, which I've since learned that I'm not alone with this. But the problem with nipples is just that the word is inherently funny. So if you're trying to write a really, really hot scene, and you have to talk about somebody's chestal protrusion and you write the word nipple um, most people don't have a problem with this it's just me and a couple of others the word nipple just kind of shouts at you off the page and it upsets the tone and it's you there aren't that many euphemisms for nipples as well like you can try chest nubbing um <laughs> but yeah um i haven't <laughs> but uh, one of the things I did try and do when I was trying to, on this kind of quest to find sort of better smutting skills, as it were, is I looked to the literary greats. Uh, so there's J.G. Ballard, right, who, he's brilliant. I love him. Even Will Self loves him. And um, there, there's this book he did, right, Crash. Um, thank you. Which I read at quite a formative age, uh, which explains a lot. Um, but there are so many things I love about this book. Like, it's got this kind of really caustic commentary running through it. It's got people getting off in car crashes and really, really inventive uses for wounds. Um, so I thought, let's see how he deals with the subject of writing sex scenes. Um, and so I reread this, and turns out he's actually quite kind of biological in the way he does it. So I'm just going to read an excerpt. Uh, so we've got... With my right hand, I parted his buttocks, feeling for the hot vent of his anus. I laid my penis at the mouth of his rectum. His anus opened around the head of my penis, settling itself around the shaft, his hard detrusor muscles gripping my glands. So you kind of get the idea there. So that tells you what needs to be said. Um, so... Those are the kind of your stylistic options there. Uh, but the next thing you've got are your actual logistics. Um, so the basics first, which is you're doing your sex scene. There's some dialogue going on. First thing to check, are they speaking with their mouth full? Because um, if one of them's got like quite a few inches of the other one down their throat, but they're also trying to have a meaningful dialogue, uh, that's probably not going to be very satisfying or comfortable for either of them. Um, and along a similar line as well, like, have you maybe accidentally gagged them? Because, um, again, that really gets in the way of dialogue. Um, and then you start getting into the logistics of the positions that you're putting them in. Um, so you kind of need to know which way up they are. And say you've tied them spread eagle to the bed, for example, uh, which is great. But if you're then going to flip them over for better access, 
that's really going to hurt at least one of them. So those are all kind of things to bear in mind. Um, so, and this is where it can unfortunately... Uh, fanfic writers like myself start to get a little bit too carried away with the detail. Um, one of the things I like to do is to, I've had to start doing rather, is to kind of make a sort of injury map. Um, so say you're writing like a 70,000 word pornado and bad things are happening to your character. It's really useful to keep track of what bad things have happened and how they're going to get in the way of things. So I've got this prop here, um, which I'm just going to upend everything. Bear with me. Um, Matilda's terrified of this prop, which is why I'm slightly proud of it. Uh, but this is the starting point of the injury map. So this is your uh, poor, sad-looking, naked man here. Not a blemish on him. And... Uh, as your stories progressed and there have been a few fights and a few interesting interactions, they get one or two marks on them. Um, so it starts to look, this is, this is the finished story thing, um, like this. Now, some of these injuries are canonical, which means they happened in the TV show, so it's not my fault. I'm not responsible for all of this. Um, but um, one or two of them. Um, but it's really, really handy, because say you're writing, say, a slippery threesome bathroom scene, uh, then say, a few kind of cuts and burns across the ankles, that's not going to get in the way of anything. You don't need to worry about that. Uh, but then you've got, say, that poorly healed gutting wound in the middle. That's going to present you with quite a lot of problems in terms of contortions, um, unless you've read Ballard's Crash, in which case that's going to present you with quite a lot of opportunities. <laughs> So, uh, basically, it could be that all of these horrible stories are ways of transposing years of kind of internalised shame and hatred of one's own body and just putting it safely into the realms of fiction. Uh, but there are thousands of us doing this, and we're not all quite as horrible as this. Um, but it's quite nice to take all our sort of internal horrors and just inflict them on our poor fictional characters, and I'm totally okay with that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so one of the reasons I'm doing this section about tragic bodies is because I'm making a show about, about my body. And one thing about my body is I'm fat. Yeah! And I was just going to say, are there any fat people here? Now, just to point out, the little bit I'm going to do now is about explaining what it's like to be fat. And if you are fat, you might think, well, I already know all this. Why are you explaining this to me? It's almost as if I'm some kind of second-rate human being. But as you're fat, you're used to that. <laughs> um, I'm fat. This is how fat I am. Um, one thing about being fat, I'm not meant to tell you. You're not meant to mention it. And the other thing about being fat is you're not meant to tell me that I'm fat, unless you're shouting at me out of a van <laughs> or traumatizing a child for their own good. Um, I know how fat I am. I'm not going to look at a photograph of myself one day and go, oh my god, I've got an arse. In the same way as you wouldn't look at a photograph of your house and go, oh my God, there's an upstairs. I, I live here. I know what it's like. Fat people know that they're fat. And the thing about being fat is that the thing that you can tell about someone by looking at them. So I know that you all know that I'm fat. I know you know. We don't talk about it. And that, as I understand it, is how being fat works. I mean, I say works. That's the system that no one has agreed upon. If you're fat, 
there's a couple of things you can do. Um, you can change your body or you can be okay about your body. And there is a sort of third option where you sort of sometimes try and be okay about your body, but at other times try and change it, but don't really change it. And then you sort of feel really shit about yourself and that you're a really terrible human being and everything would be better if you were somehow just better, but you're not, you're terrible and you're fat. And although that sounds like a terrible option, that's actually the most popular, the most popular one. Um, but if you don't, if you decide that what you want is to try and change your body, that's, that's a kind of difficult thing. I mean, there is a kind of idea that there's a kind of physics to this, that the calories in, calories out idea, which is sort of based on, I think, this kind of like the weight of cake eaten minus the number of stairs that you've climbed equals the size of your ass, like as if your body is literally made of the things you've eaten apart from the bits that fell off when you went jogging, that's the body you have. But, you know, it's not as simple as that. Um, you, can't, you can't really change anything about your body. There's a lot of statistics that say that if you try and change your body, any weight that you lose will not stay lost. And for the very tiny proportion of people for whom it does stay lost, they were actually only trying to lose like one very tiny pound of weight anyway. And that is now pretty much common knowledge. Everyone knows you can't lose weight from dieting. Babies are now born with this in their DNA that they know that you can't lose weight from dieting. Um, aliens on planets without gravity know that you can't lose weight by dieting. They can tell you this and we don't even share a language with them. <laughs> it's a well-known thing. You can't lose weight from dieting. It may be possible to lose weight from something called a lifestyle change, but no one knows what that is. <laughs> and the more I think about it, the more I think what they mean when they say lifestyle change is just being dead which I suppose would work. I don't do that. I've chosen the best option, which is being okay about my fat body. I am okay about my fat body. I have come on stage and told you that I'm fat. So obviously, I'm okay about my fat body. I'm making a show called How To Be Fat. Would a person who wasn't okay about their fat body do that? No, I am okay about my fat body. Would a person who wasn't okay about their fat body make a show about having a fat body? Obviously not. I am okay about my fat body. I'm so okay I've made a show about it. <laughs> In my show, I'm gonna have a guess my weight competition. I'm doing this because I think it will be upsetting. Weight is an upsetting thing. People get upset about it. If I'm not allowed to tell you that I'm fat, I'm even less allowed to tell you my weight. And you are certainly not allowed to tell me what you think my weight is. And that is why I'm going to have a guess my weight competition. <laughs> so I told the director of my show, I want to have a guess my weight competition. The director of my show is a very fat man. He's a very, very fat man. And he said to me, why do you want to do that? And I said, because I don't think people know what fat people weigh. And he said, well, what do you think I weigh then? And I said, I think you weigh 22 stone. He's quite tall. And now, angry. <laughs> I'm not sure if he's still directing my show. But he's asked me to put this part in where I say that the ex-director of my show <laughs> does not weigh 22 stone. Apparently he weighs 15 and a half stone. I don't know if that's true, but he's asked me to say it. I hope that's cleared that up. I think it's proved my point though. Number one, people don't know what fat people weigh. And number two, weight is weird and people are really fucking weird about it. In my show, I'm going to have a guess my weight competition. It's going to be like a guess the weight of the cake competition that you have in a fate. Except obviously you don't win a cake. You just win me. Which is slightly less good than winning a cake. Um, and if you don't think that's less good, I really worry about your need to gain ownership of a fat middle-aged woman. But 
it's not a good thing to win. I'm very expensive to run. I eat a lot of cake for a start. In many ways, winning me is the opposite of winning a cake because I will consume any cake that you already have. <laughs> but I'm making a show about my fat body and I'm holding a Guess My Weight competition and the reason I'm doing this is because I am okay with my fat body and that is how okay I am about it. I am very, very okay. Except it is quite hard to be okay with your fat body. And the thing about being okay with your fat body is, in many ways, it's as prone to failure and disappointment as changing your fat body, which, in case you don't remember from two minutes ago, is very prone to failure and disappointment indeed. So the thing about that option, though, being okay with my fat body, is if I fail at it, at least you can't tell by looking at me. You can't tell that I'm not okay with my fat body. You'd never, you'd never know. You'd never know that I'm not okay with my fat body. I'm making a show about my fat body. You'd assume I was okay with it, I think. And but the thing is, I really do want to be okay with my fat body. And the reason why I want to be okay with my fat body is because I've kind of always assumed that if I was okay with my fat body, that'd make me thin. So I thought if I make a show about my fat body, that'll make me okay about my fat body. And then by the end of the show, I'll be thin. That's the plan. You can come and see the show and see how well that's actually worked. I mean, it's a lifestyle change being in a show. Um, That's the end of Tragic Bodies. Um, just going to have one more round of applause for all the acts you've seen in this section who were Krishna Ishtha, Muffy, and Matilda Gregory. And uh, there's, a, there's a break now, and then after the break, uh, Tragic Sex. So enjoy the break, and then enjoy that. Thank you very much. Tragic Spring is here. That means Tragic Summer is on its way, and that's happening on Saturday, the 6th of June, at the Hackney Attic, including Tragic Holidays featuring Sajila Kershey, Tragic Climate, guest curated by Alice Bell, who will be looking at Tragic Climate Change, and then Tragic Leisure featuring Radcliffe Royds and Charlie Harrison. And that's just the start of the tragic summer because on the 23rd of July at the Dog Star in Brixton, we've got a night of tragic previews where myself and Radcliffe Royds will both be showing our solo storytelling show with Stand Up Tragedy is producing as part of our lineup for Tragic Edinburgh 2015. Stand Up Tragedy will be happening nearly every day from the 8th to the 30th of August at the Banshee Labyrinth from 7.30 till 8.30, bringing an hour of tragic variety to most days of the festival. Mondays, we'll have special guest host and guest curated nights. And on Tuesdays, we're taking the night off and instead there'll be live recordings of my other podcast, Getting Better Acquainted. I'll be doing my solo show at 12.05 at Cabaret Voltaire every day apart from Mondays. And Radcliffe will be doing his show at the Stafford Centre at 7.30pm. It's going to be a tiring and tragic and amazing and wonderful summer. So spend some of your summer with some tragedy. And for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast has been produced by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionary.